Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, you deserve it all. Our lives, our minds, our hearts. You deserve all the glory. And this is the time that we open your powerful, precious word. The word that is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. This is the time that we look at the glory of Christ. This is the time that uh, we see the beautiful picture of your love for us. I pray, God, that I would be faithful and we would have uh, ears to hear this morning, for it's in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, it's so good to to be up here. Somebody on my UPS route was saying, don't you get really nervous when you come up and you speak? I said, yeah, when you're at your own church, you look out and all the faces you see, you know that you love them and they love you. Uh, or they like you, I think, I don't know. Um, but it is a joy. Uh, I am following Pastor Phil from last week. I've got to admit something since there's communion today. Uh, last week when I came in the service, uh, I got the notes, and they looked a little bit like my passage, because 1 Thessalonians, it's similar in each chapter, and I panicked a little bit, and I just prayed a really quick prayer for Pastor Phil. I said, Lord, it wasn't a precatory prayer, you're trying to call down anything. Um, I just said, God, help Pastor Phil to preach everything you want him to preach, and help him not to preach anything that you want me to preach. And he, he walked that fine line last week, and he set it up so beautifully, so thank you. But it is funny how when a speaker comes in, and they see notes, and they're like, that looks like my sermon. Um, but we are looking at 1 Thessalonians, Teddy, so you might want to turn over there. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. I'll be speaking today, and then in a few weeks, I'll be doing the part two. I was going to start out this morning telling you how intensely Paul loved the church. But I think I'm going to start out reminding you how intensely he hated the church. Remember with me, he grew up as Saul, and he was educated in one of the finest universities in Tarsus. And there was no, more, there was no one no more committed to Judaism than Paul. And just to show you how much he hated Christianity... He told King Agrippa in Acts 26, on the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from synagogue to another, having them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. It's, just, it's crazy to see Paul in the light of killing and persecuting Believers, And you say, well, are you exaggerating kind of for emphasis? Uh, was he really that bad? No, I'm not exaggerating uh, for emphasis. And yes, he really was that bad. After he gave the nod to have Stephen stoned in Acts chapter 7, says they laid their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul, a young man named Saul. I know we just think, well, he's probably just a coat taker. No, he gave the nod to have Stephen stoned. And then in verse 3 of chapter 8, it says... But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house to house, he dragged off men and women 
and he committed them to prison. And that word ravaging is the word that you would see in National Geographic when you're watching out in the wild and one animal ripping another animal apart. He was trying to rip the church of Jesus Christ apart. And then it happened in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, on the way to a city where he was going to still kill, still cause people to blaspheme, still persecute, the Lord Jesus Christ knocked him down, shone that light on him, and he gloriously saves Paul right there, and he's transformed. And he blinds him for three days, and then, do you remember the servant, the Lord comes to the service, Ananias, and he says, I want you to go to Paul, and he tells him this, go, this man is my chosen servant, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And from then on, Paul pretty much lived out from it. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. He spent the rest of his life preaching Christ and loving the church. That's the power of the gospel when it changes Uh, the heart of a person. God can turn a fierce hatred into an intense love by his power. And you know, Paul was a missionary. He was an apostle. He was a theologian. He was an evangelist. He was even a layman, which that's kind of what I like the most of Paul because I'm a layman. Uh, I'm a lay elder. That means I have a job and then I also help lead this church. And I've always loved Paul for that. But you see his pastor's heart in every single thing that he did. That's why I've entitled this Inside the Heart of a Shepherd. Because we get to peer into Paul's heart, especially in two weeks. Um, And that's that's what a pastor's called in the Bible. He's called a shepherd, right? A A few years ago, a popular pastor of a mega church found himself in a little hot water Because he said that CEO is probably a better term for a pastor because no one knows of any shepherds and it's not really relevant. And he said in this interview, would Jesus use the term shepherd to describe the pastor today? He says, no, he would use something else more relatable than that we would know. By the time the book of Acts comes, the shepherd model is completely gone. Acts 20.28, it's not so gone. Uh, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. See, that shepherd model is still around because it's a great analogy. Jesus is the good shepherd or the great shepherd. And then he calls pastors to be the under shepherds to shepherd his flock. And I love the analogy. I don't think there's a better analogy in scripture. A, past, a, a shepherd watches, he, he guards, he protects, he leads, he feeds, he warns, he loves, he rescues. You don't have trouble understanding that, do you? I always thought to myself when I read that article, I... When I get to the end of my life, I'm pretty sure Psalm 23 is going to be on my lips and yours too, right? The Lord is my CEO? <laughs> that doesn't give me the comfort that the Lord is my shepherd. Um, 
So as you see the heart of Paul this morning, as we look at it, I want you to see the hearts of the pastors at your church. I hope you see the love that they have for you and the desire that they have for you to be Christ-like. We're only going to get past, we're not going to get past one point because I couldn't get, I couldn't get past 2.13, the power of the word of God. And that's where we'll be. And then in two weeks, I'll put on the, uh, the jet pack and I will finish my passage. But I want you to look at, at the top of the notes. It says, only the word of God can produce spiritual life in the soul of a man. Only the word of God. And look at that phrase throughout the sermon as we go. We see Paul's heart for his flock, and this is our only point. He constantly thanked God for their love for the word. He was constantly thanking God. Let's read it. We also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of the God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved. So also to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. And this is an amazing thing because he starts out with thanking God and then he ends with some pretty heavy judgment. But remember this. When Timothy comes back from Thessalonica, right? Timothy comes back from Thessalonica. It's a two-week trip because you walk and you ride. He comes to Corinth where Paul is and he starts to tell Paul, and we'll see a little bit of this in two weeks, they're doing great. Thumbs up. Those young believers are doing awesome. They're being persecuted, but they're still remaining faithful. And I can picture Paul running to get his parchment and his pen saying, don't unpack yet. <laughs> don't unpack yet, Timothy. I mean, I'm going to write this and you're going to need to. And Timothy goes right back. He goes right back from a trip, goes right back two weeks to a Thessalonica to deliver uh, these letters. And Paul is so filled with joy, he just can't stop writing. I'm just so glad. He's just so filled uh, with joy. And it says, they heard the word. He said, we thank God continually because when you received the word which you heard from us. When did they hear the word? Remember Acts 17? Three Sabbaths, Paul comes to the synagogue. And whenever you go to the synagogue, you're sitting there as a visiting rabbi, and they always ask, do you want to say anything? And he said, I would like to say something. He unrolled the scrolls, and look what it says. He explained and he proved that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Can you imagine being in the synagogue every Sabbath, opening the Torah, and anticipating the Messiah, longing for the Messiah, looking at scriptures that were pointing to the Messiah. It's almost like the second coming, how we anticipate that, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking, it may not be in my lifetime, but you just anticipate it, you hope for it. They were doing the same thing, and then Paul comes to their town for three Sabbaths, and he says, he's here. This Jesus, this Messiah, 
who I'm talking about. He's here. He came. He bore our sins. He rose again from the dead. His name is Jesus. And he can give you eternal life to all who will believe in his name. And they did. You say, did they throw him out? Of course they threw him out because they threw Paul out of every uh, town. But there were believers that came out of that, that formed a small nucleus that just loved Paul so much. So he said, you obeyed the word. Not only did you hear it, but he says, you accepted it. You accepted it. Notice those two words. You received the word, and then you accepted it or obeyed the word. First, the first word means to hear with your ear. You heard. And then the second word is to, to, to invite that word into your life as a guest. And he said, you did both of those. And that thrilled my heart. Warren Wiersbe said, one means the hearing of the ear, and the other means the hearing of the heart. You remember when Jesus said in Matthew 13, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's like, what? He who has ears to understand, let him accept this truth that I'm about to share with you. And that's a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel. Remember what Paul said in Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or the word of Christ. So go backwards in that verse. The word of God is preached by somebody. I hear it and then I believe it. I accept it in my life. The Thessalonians not only heard what Paul was saying, they believed it and it changed their lives. I like James 1.22. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And I have to keep reminding myself of this. If the reception of the word brings no transformation in my life, then I'm being deceived. Like whenever I read the scripture, I always think of what Jesus said in John 13, that night he washed the disciples' feet. When he got done washing their feet, he said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you what? If you do them. And so whenever I'm doing my Bible study, I'm preparing for a sermon, I just keep thinking, okay, now I know these things. Now I know them. I'm blessed when I what? When I live them out, when I do them. That's where the blessing comes if not, I could be in a room in my basement looking at my uh, Wayne Grudem theology book that's 1,400 pages and never leave the basement. I would never be blessed by God because I would probably blow up and you'd find parts of Scripture all over the place because I'm not living it out, right? God wants us to hear the word and accept it, and they did, and they did. And now look how they honored the word. Verse 13, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Notice, they didn't see it as the word of men. Write something down. If I, I'm not sure if I have this in the notes or not. Nothing of this world's message will ever Help us find our way to God. Nothing in this world's message will ever help us find our way to God. And the Thessalonians were being bombarded 
As Pastor Phil was talking about a few weeks ago, it was a trade city, the Ignatian Way. It was a cesspool city filled with idolaters and philosophers who would come constantly on every corner who would be just spouting empty philosophy, the words of men. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's a Grand Canyon difference between the words of men and the word of God. You know that. The world doesn't know that. And what I mean is, and the gospel of God in this particular, the word of men is exactly what it is. The word of men. It has no power to forgive. It has no power to give life. It has no power to give lasting joy or peace. It has no power to fix my relationship with the living God. Absolutely no power. And so the Thessalonians embraced the word, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. They embraced it, and it brought all those things into their lives. It brought forgiveness of sins. It brought everlasting peace. It brought so much joy, even in their affliction, chapter 1, verse 6 says. And it brought restoration and a new relationship with the living God. And Paul said, I'm so thankful that you heard it. Was it because Paul was just so eloquent? Could it have been that maybe he was one of the most eloquent speakers and that's what made his message so powerful? I don't think so because 2 Corinthians, when they're talking about Paul, they said, hey, his words are weighty, but his appearance is very unimpressive. I don't think Paul was real unimpressive. I read a little history of a description of Paul. It said he was moderate height, bald, very scarred, and he had a long hooked nose. I even think you said this a few weeks ago. That sounds more like Yoda, um, doesn't it? So it's not like when Paul came in, all the megachurch synagogues were calling him. Um, I think Paul, it wasn't his looks, it wasn't his speech. It was the word of God. And this book right here is so powerful. You remember what Paul said? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the what? It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So Paul just came in and he said, I'm just going to share the gospel because every town I go in when I share the gospel, lives change and there's transformation. And my voice is as loud as all these other philosophers, but somehow my voice is getting through to hearts and it's because the word of God is powerful. The word of God is powerful. Verse 5, he says, our gospel came to you, this is chapter 1, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Think about this, talking about deep conviction. Just knowing that the Holy Spirit's going to use this book in people's lives. Uh, if it's an unbeliever, it will come and it will say, listen, what he's saying is true. And it will leave with that person. That's what gives me so much peace. When somebody hears the word of God, I don't call them at 1230 on Sunday afternoon. Did you hear what I said? Are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about it? What do you think you'll do? Right? I just know the word of God is going to work in their life. I know the word of God is going to be powerful and he's going to keep bringing that truth up to the unsaved person and to the saved person. This is, I got to do that. I got to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I got to forgive that person. I've got to be more kind. I've got to be more patient. I've got to stop gossiping. That's the word of God. Heavy conviction in your life. I'll never forget this. A long time ago, 1979, I was 18 years old. 
I picked up a Bible. Now, I did not know anything about Jesus Christ, anything about salvation. And I picked up a Bible in my sister's room, and I just opened it, and it said, Jesus talks to Nicodemus. I'm like, oh, I don't even know who that is. But I looked down, and it said, I'm telling you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. I'm like, wow. And I shut it. I kept it in my room because I kept reading it, and I couldn't get that out of my mind. Uh, Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I didn't know what born again meant, so I put that off to the side. But kingdom of God, that must have been heaven, maybe. So I'm thinking, heaven, I want to go to heaven? He can't go to heaven. Why can't he go to heaven? Because he hasn't been born again. I got to find out what born again means. This is so true. I go to Bethel Bookstore, 1979, the cashier's there, and I go, I need a book on being born again. And she said, uh, all right, hold on. And she went in the back, and she came out, and she said, I have two books. And uh, she says, I have one. They're both by Billy Graham. This one's How to Be Born Again, and this one's uh, How to Have Peace with God. I said, "I'll I'll take both of them. I'll take both of them. So I took both of them. Uh, you know, it's funny. It seems like it would have been a good time for her to get on the, the uh, intercom and say, we need a counselor to the cashier desk right away. Because there's a, there's a man that has no peace and he's not born again and he really needs somebody to, uh, but she didn't. And so a few months later, I read those books and, and, and God's word kept working in my heart and, I, and he opened my heart and I understood what born again means. It means that I admit to God that I'm lost and my sin is taking me to hell and Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and if I believe on his name, I will find forgiveness in eternal life. Matter of fact, one of, the, one of the books, one of the Bibles my sister had, had a stick figure of a, of a stick figure with a big sack on the back. It was his sin. And it came up to the cross and then the next picture he was walking away joyfully and the, the big load of sin was left at the cross. And as an unbeliever, I understood that. I'm like, I need to leave my sin at the cross. That's how the word of God works. That's how the Holy Spirit didn't leave me alone. He did not leave me alone. Never underestimate the power of the word of God in your life or in the lives of those who you're sharing with. Because I've been a Christian 42 years, and it still impresses me how powerful it is in people's lives. I never get tired of reading it uh, or studying it. Um, so why are these words so powerful? Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. Because they are from God. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's, God's word has authority. This book is breathed out by God. The words of this book are breathed out by God. You say, wait a minute, I thought, I thought this book was written by man. Wasn't this book written by man? Yes, but it's breathed out by God. I don't get that. I mean, did God get in a room with each Bible writer, appear to them, and say, write this down. He did sometimes. 
in Deuteronomy with Moses and in Revelation. He does that with John. Write this down, John, what I'm about to say to you. But God didn't do that to give us his word. He didn't do that. He chose to leave all these Bible writers right in the process. Second Peter says this, no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's like the wind hitting a sail that moves a ship. So a man just didn't say, I think I'm going to write Leviticus. Yeah, I think I'll write Leviticus. No prophecy ever came by the will of man. The Holy Spirit of God began to work on that man. And using his knowledge and his personality and his life experience, that man wrote down and composed the word of God without error. It's a miracle. It is a miracle. I don't understand it all. But I'm thankful. I'm thankful that he gave us his words. And this is the only book that you'll ever find God's authority. You won't find it in the Quran. You won't find it in the Bhagavad Gita. You won't find it anywhere in, the, in, in uh, anything except the word of God. Now, I read this. I love this. These Bible writers were not left out of the process, but they were right in the middle of the process. They were included in the very act of writing scripture. Their own thoughts, attitudes, insights, emotions, all along under the very control of God. That's amazing. That, so any question that I have about it, and there's a lot of questions that come up. Did they, so they copy, do we have the original manuscripts? No, but it's still all along under the control of God. But how did they copy it? I'll bet they made a lot of mistakes. We have so many copies of the Greek New Testament that we just, we just compare those, and it's so accurate. You say, well, did, was God able to preserve it? I mean, all those emperors that wanted to burn the word of God, all along under the total control of God. You know, God's not gonna, God's not gonna inspire his word through these writers and then just say, oh man, I can't preserve it. Wish I could get that copied. And sometimes I wonder, was this every, was it every word that God wanted? Or was he like, eh, it's close. I mean, I'd like to rework Ezekiel 1. It's a little confusing for people. No, it says all scripture is inspired by God. Every single word that God wanted, nothing less and nothing more, is in this book that you have on your shelf or your, or your table and you open every morning with a cup of coffee. It's like God, it's like the ink is never dry on this book, right? Well, I love this. Delisa Ferguson last week in our life group says, can you please make sure you tell them that it is living? <laughs> that God's word is alive. I said, I will, I promise. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word has power, and it is alive. It's the only book that can, that can make a man come to his wife after he heard it and said, I, I, I am so sorry how I've, been, how I've been treating you. Or, or a wife come to her husband and say, I haven't been respecting you, and I've, I've read the, the word today or under the authority of, of the pastor today, and I just feel like I haven't been respecting you like I should. You can't manipulate or generate those things humanly. It's the word of God the power. 
Now, Paul knew. Paul knew the word of God was so powerful, and that's all he preached when he came into a town. There's only one time that he preached something different, and that was when he went to talk to the uh, philosophers in Greece, in Athens. And he just opened up with some of their little stuff that, that could get their attention, and then he shared the word of God. All right? Look what he says in 1 Corinthians. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You know, I've been teaching this book a long time, and there have been times when I have tried the wise and persuasive words in my sermons or in my lessons, and you end up getting done and you're so discouraged because you know you've blown it. And it's almost like God impresses on my heart and says, listen, I don't need your help. I don't need your eloquence. I don't need any of that. I just need you to present my word clearly and accurately and passionately and let me do the rest. That's something to remember for all you who share the word of God. We are so blessed to have men behind this pulpit. Pastor Phil and Pastor Blodgett and Eric and Sean and Steve and Carl. We all have different styles. Somebody came to the commons last year and said, it's so cool, you all have different styles and yet you're all committed to preaching the word. And I'm like, thank you, that's so encouraging. That's so encouraging. Now, this doesn't happen in our church. Repeat, this does not happen in our church, but I get so frustrated when I see a pastor walking around on the platform, never referring to Scripture, never talking about Scripture, never explaining Scripture, never opening the Bible, never talking about Jesus Christ. I'm like, what are you up there for? It's been 20 minutes. I mean, he's... His clock says only five more minutes. He hasn't even opened the word. One particular pastor I was watching on TV of a very large flock. My blood pressure went up so high. Unfortunately, um, I take blood pressure medicine, so it came down pretty quick. Um, but he was just entertaining his flock with funny stories. But the Bible was laying, it was laying on the corner of his table closed the whole time. Now I understand we have our, we have a lot of times, I've got to cover myself I have scripture in my notes blown up because um, I can't see as well. When So I understand that, but it wasn't the case in this situation. And the congregation was falling apart laughing. You could have put any scene in there. It could have been a nightclub act, okay? And I thought to myself, and I wrote this down, what if the Bible could stand up, turn to the pastor, and open its pages and say this to him. Now bear with me. Please open me. I better open this one. Do that. <laughs> Let me show you the power that I have to transform the heart of every person you're talking to right now. My words can transform. Your words can only entertain. You can have them laughing to tears. But I can break their hard hearts and they will shed real tears of repentance. 
Your words can motivate them temporarily, but my words can transform them for all eternity. Please open me and let me do what I was meant to do. 2 Timothy 4 says, preach the word in season or out of season. That, 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 that's when it's popular and when it's not popular. That's when your church is growing and that's when your church is shrinking. Preach the word. I'll never forget this. John MacArthur has left a pretty big impact in my life. I started listening to him in 1979, 1980, and there's been no one more committed to proclaiming the truth uh, he said this at his 50th celebration, not 50, he wasn't 50 years old. He'd been at his church 50 years in 2019. And he said, I've spent 50 years giving you not what I thought you wanted, but what I knew you needed. I'll say that again, because some of you were just, I spent the last 50 years giving you not what I thought you wanted, but what I knew you needed. I'm confident Pastor Phil has laid his head on the pillow on Sunday nights, knowing that he gave us not necessarily what we wanted, but what he knew we needed, and that is a faithful shepherd. Listen to Paul's warning to Timothy. For the time is coming, 2 Timothy 4.3, when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. As I wrote that, I didn't write that, but as I wrote that in my notes, I think it's going to be very difficult to be a pastor in the coming days. I even put it's going to be very difficult slash dangerous to be a pastor if the Lord doesn't tarry in the next 20 years. I have a note. The cool ones will still get their spot on Oprah. But I'm talking about the pastor who's going to open this book and proclaim the whole counsel of God. It's not going to be popular. It is not going to be popular and based on this verse, it may not even be popular in the church, let alone outside of the church. Why? Because we preach the truth. We believe this is the truth. And there's no such thing as truth anymore. No one wants to hear the truth. I'll never forget our first elders meeting when we, this is 10 years ago maybe, Carl Rackinator was passing out the agendas he said, Gino, did you get an agenda? And I go, no, thank you, Carl. I have my own agenda. And um, we laughed. But that's how people picture truth now. Can I share the truth with you? No, thank you, Phil. I have my own truth. I have my own truth. There's no such thing as objective truth anymore. It's my own truth. We're way past postmodern thinking. Truth now is in the eyes of the beholder, just like beauty. But I'm, I side with Jesus on this. He said, Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. He said in John 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. He says, heaven and earth shall pass away in Matthew 24, but my words will never 
pass away. Look at verse 13. It says, which is at work in you believers. That's what I love about the word of God. It's constantly in work, at work in the believer's life and in the unbeliever's life. In the believer's life, it's constantly working as we stay under the authority of Scripture. That's why when people say, I, I, I really don't come to church anymore or watch online, I'm really kind of just, you know, I'm doing my own thing. I really think as you put your life under the authority of somebody preaching the word of God and sharing the word of God, that's when it's working in your life. And how does it work in an unbeliever's life? It's constantly chasing them, reminding them that repentance and faith is what will bring them around. And that's why I have so much confidence in this book. I'm People used to come up to me when I taught Sunday school and say, hey, I have a visitor, and they don't know the Lord. Can you change your whole lesson? I, I think they were thinking, I have a visitor that doesn't know the Lord, so can you? Um, and I'm like, well, I'm going to teach from the Bible. And I've really never changed my, I mean, unless I were preaching, like, if, teaching on like the Levitical offerings, or, you know, I may change some things, but I'm just going to preach the word of God and let them see how powerful it is, Right? I understand and I appreciate Isaiah 55, the older I get. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so my word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. I don't have to manipulate this book I don't have to exaggerate I know based on this verse and others that if I teach it faithfully God will send it out into hearts and it will accomplish exactly what he wants in every situation and with every single person who hears it so if you're teaching the three-year-olds, you can get excited that those Bible stories you're telling them will go with them long after the parents come and pick them up. Or if you're a young parent today, you can be assured that the word of God you're hiding in your little kid's heart or you're teaching them by example or by story form will guide, teach, and remind them their entire lives. And even if they stray from the path, you can pray, God, Holy Spirit of God, remind them of the beautiful truths they learned while they were small. Remind them how much you love them. And those words never go away from their lives. So they heard the word, they obeyed the word, they honored the word, and finally as we close, they suffered for the word. They suffered Look at the imitators. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus, and you suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. He was so encouraged that these young Christians, and we're going to see in two weeks, he was, a little, he was a little fearful that these young Christians were going to be tempted by the devil and maybe lose their faith. He was, he was nervous. That's why he sent Timothy. When he finds out these young baby Christians are taking affliction 
and still living for the Lord, he is just beside himself spiritually. And that's what shepherds do. They're excited for their flock. Listen to this verse. Philippians 1.29. And I think I have something on your notes saying, suffering for Christ is a privilege that all believers experience when they become Christians. And then Philippians 1.29 says this. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted. That word granted is a graceful gift. It has been given to you as a graceful gift, not only to believe on his name. So God gives us a gift. It's eternal life. And we're opening it going, oh, yes, this is heaven and forgiveness. And, okay, that's hope. I can't open that yet. Suffering? He says, yeah, that's, that's a gift that God's given you. I've given you that, along with eternal life. You're going to suffer for my name, and you're going to have so much joy, and you're going to make such an impact. You're going to be so much like me going through that. You're like, thank you. And then you realize that you go through it, you look back. Most of the times that I've grown in my life have been from the suffering. Well, look at the, the rejectors who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Not everyone who hears the word of God accepts the word of God. The Jews in Jerusalem and the Jews in Thessalonica heard the gospel, but they violently rejected the gospel. Matter of fact, Acts chapter 7, it says the Jews put their fingers in their ears and they ran towards Stephen to kill him. That's violent rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul was telling them in this passage, God will not let them get away from all the pain that they have caused the believers in those towns. And I wrote this down. The same word that offers us salvation today will one day be our judge if we continue to reject the gospel. You may be saying, listen, I don't have fingers in my ears, rejection. I just don't believe I need Jesus Christ at this time in my life. And I can respect that. And I'm glad you're here or online. And I pray that maybe I've put a stone in your shoe this week and you would be thinking about Christ this week, maybe enough to come back and to hear the Bible taught. But there's a one of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, he was friends with one of the greatest evangelists of that time, George Whitfield. George Whitfield would speak to thousands of people in a field outside without a sound system. And Benjamin Franklin heard him many times, and he loved George Whitfield. They were friends. He thought he was so eloquent. A few weeks before Benjamin Franklin's death at 84, he answered this letter from a pastor friend on what his opinion 
of Jesus of Nazareth was. And he answered it this way. And I have with most of the present dissenters in England some doubts as his divinity. Though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and I think it needless to busy myself with it now, when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. Can I tell you something with all the love and concern in my heart? It's not a needless thing to know who Jesus Christ is. It is the most important thing you will ever know. More than your investments, more than your relationships, more than your accomplishments, however great they may be. And please don't wait until you stand before God to inquire who Jesus Christ is. He's told us so clearly who he is in this book. I was writing down some things Friday night. These are just a few things he's told us who he is. He's the son of God that was sent from heaven to save us. He's the bread of life that can satisfy our hungry soul. He's the living water that can forever quench your spiritual thirst. He's the only way to heaven. He's the truth that never changes. He's the only one that can give you eternal life when you call on his name. And he is the great sin bearer who took God's wrath on the cross so we wouldn't have to. How are you hearing this morning? Jesus said, today if you hear my voice, harden not your heart.